Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, very, very good to see everybody here this morning. Um, and thank you, Brandon, for leading those songs. Um, we're going to be in the place to begin with uh, that was read in the scripture reading. There are two times, and only two times, in Matthew's gospel account uh, of Jesus' life where Jesus pointed out great faith in two individuals. Um, Reading about these accounts and just reading Matthew in general has really um, confronted me with how much Jesus noticed faith, how much Jesus talked about faith, how much Jesus encouraged faith, how much he would try to get people to think about faith, And it's really helped me understand that I don't think about faith enough. I don't value faith enough. I don't talk about faith enough. I don't strive to grow in my faith enough. Um, And I think in any subject or any profession or any field, if somebody points out, hey, this thing above all else, this is the most critical thing to succeed in this field. If you care about growing in that field or being involved, what are you going to do? That should lead you to focus on that one thing that was pointed out to be critical to success. And God clearly points out that our success in our relationship with him, our ability to be connected with him, the foundation for salvation, it is all centered on faith. And faith is so misdefined in the world, it is undervalued, underappreciated things are said about faith that just aren't true. But then something I struggle with is I tend to think too little about faith. I think about faith oftentimes as a dry theological concept, um, as in I either believe what is true or I don't believe what is true. Either I accept the fact or I don't accept the fact. And uh, the way that Jesus would talk about faith and point it out, that really isn't the whole picture of what faith is. And so I want to spend this morning thinking about these two examples Jesus gives of great faith and uh, try to encourage just thinking meaningfully about these, these examples in a way that challenges us to also strive to grow in our faith and seek this kind of faith. Um, let's go to God in prayer, though, before we um, go into the text in Matthew 8. Uh, if you'll pray with me for a moment. Thank you, God, for giving us time to spend in your word this morning. Thank you for the power of your word and how challenging your word is. God, we know that faith is so simple and accessible, but we know that there is so much to understand about the value of faith and the significance and the power of faith. Please help us just to be amazed at these interactions and to be challenged and convicted and emboldened to think more about you and to think more about our trust and our dependence on you. Help us to have great faith. Help us to seek great faith, God, and please build faith in the group here, God. Um, we're, much, we're such a small number. There are so many struggles that exist in this group here, God. Please use our struggles and use where we are to build a stronger faith, a more diligent and passionate faith, God. Help us, Father, to have the greatest passion that we can possibly have for you and for your will 
Help us, Father, to destroy the idols that exist, the obstacles that exist, the sin that exists that would cause any hindrance to the progress and the growth of our faith. Just please strengthen us, God, and help us to follow in the examples that you've left for us. And bless your word. Help us to be humble-hearted and open and to want your word and to want righteousness from your word. In your son's name, amen. All right, so we'll read again Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 15, or 5 through 13. So, like I said, there's two examples we're going to look at. Jesus points out great faith in both of the examples. There are an incredible amount of similarities between these examples, and so we're going to see some very similar things. And we've seen in some of our studies in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, that sometimes Jesus will say very similar things to emphasize something very strongly. And that's going to be the nature of this lesson. Um, Both of the events we're going to look at are, I think, deliberately similar to emphasize things very strongly. So Matthew 8, 5 through 13 again. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. The servant was healed that very moment. So I want to start with Jesus' statement that he makes there in verse 10. After marveling and uh, speaking about this person's faith to those who are following, he says, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. In Luke chapter 7, um, there's a parallel account of the same event. And there are some statements here in Matthew that I think heighten the warning that Jesus wants us as readers to take away from this, this event. And so I think we have to understand just how dire this warning is. And imagine with anyone in Israel, and just focus on that statement. That means among the common people, among the leadership. I'm sure growing up, Jesus had just about interacted with anybody who would go to Jerusalem for the festivals, no matter where they were from. Jesus spent time learning from genuine leadership. I'm sure in Jesus' childhood and even in his adult, adult life, there were priests, there were teachers who were not just ingenuine like the Pharisees generally were. And yet Jesus says he has not found even one person, not even one, among the entire Jewish nation in all his experience with a faith like this centurion man. I think this helps us understand what faith is not and some dangers that can really be obstacles in our faith. 
Jesus did not measure, and faith in general just is not measured by the amount of knowledge we have. Uh, I doubt the centurion knew as much as some of the scribes and Pharisees knew about the law of Moses, and yet he seemingly had exceedingly greater faith than those leaders. So faith is not having great knowledge or all the knowledge of God's word. It's also not being a part of the right group. So we'll talk more in a moment about how this centurion was a Gentile wasn't from a Jewish background. He was a Roman commander in the Roman army. And yet, not being a part of the right group, he had a greater faith than any single person in the Jewish nation. So despite all of these tools that the Jewish nation had for faith, specifically to equip their faith, these things in some way had become a stumbling block And this person who did not have as much access to these tools had a greater faith than anyone in the Jewish nation. And so this, I think, helps us narrow narrow our focus on the other things we're going to see in the example here in Jesus' interaction with the centurion. But I think these things are very relatable, right? Faith is not the amount of knowledge we have. It's not the amount of correct knowledge we have. We're going to see that the centurion, he knew who God was. And knowing who God was had fundamentally radically changed both his perspective of God, his word, his power, and where he stood in position in relation to God. And that affected his interaction with Jesus and his way of seeing himself. Knowledge without humility is not faith. Correct understanding, no matter how far it goes or how much it is, correct understanding of doctrine without self-examining humility is not faith and it is not great faith when we read god's word when we talk about god's word if we're just rehearsing information we've learned before to pat ourselves on the back for what we know and what others don't know that's not faith And being a part of the right group, it's important. And I think this centurion understood the Jewish nation was important. We find out in Luke that he had even funded a synagogue for them to build. He had won the favor of the Jewish leader. So he knew the importance of Israel, but he still was a Gentile. And yet he still had great faith. And all the people in Israel Jesus had ever interacted with did not have the faith that the centurion had. So what was great about the centurion's faith? What can we take away from this interaction? His faith was diligently self-discovered and inconvenient, for one. So back in verse uh, 5, a centurion is just the only description we really get about who this person was, where he comes from. A centurion was somebody who was a Roman commander in charge of about 100 people. So like century means 100. So a Roman commander in charge of about 100 people. Uh, Again, this would not be someone from a Jewish heritage. This would be someone who is completely from a Gentile background, which means he would have been having to overcome many obstacles in learning about God and in approaching God and approaching the Jewish people. The fact that he was in the Roman army to keep order in Jewish territory probably means he was not looked on very well initially. Now, again, if you look at Luke chapter 7, he had won the favor of the Jewish elders. But I don't think that's something that just happened overnight, right? Somebody who is, again, 
in charge by the Roman Empire of keeping order among the Jewish people, everything we read of in the New Testament implies the Jewish people were generally not in favor of the Roman leadership interfering with their nation and their affairs. And so he would have had to diligently discover God. He would need to overcome obstacles in order to form and build his faith. He would need to think through things critically. He would need to compare this God and the history of what God had done in relation to the other idols that were worshipped and given credit in the Roman Empire. And so he would have had to discover faith in a much more inconvenient way. I think a way to think about this more relatably um, is the danger of growing up with Christian parents or you know, just kind of being in a culture where you're around people of faith constantly. It can easily be as you grow up, you, know, you just kind of eventually think, well, I guess it's about time for me to start believing this stuff, right? Or you just kind of get to a part where you think, yeah, baptism for the remission of sins, I mean, I guess that does make sense, so I guess it is about time for me to go ahead and do that, isn't it? And that's not the faith that we see in this Roman centurion. Convenience is the enemy of a rooted faith. Convenience is the enemy of a rooted and great faith. Trust cannot be established or built without sacrificial investment and risks that are taken that we see rewarded by the other party in the relationship. Convenience is the enemy of the rooted faith. Now, this needs to be clarified, right? Obviously, God wants us to have easy exposure to the truth. Timothy was someone with seemingly great faith who had a mother and grandmother who, in a sense, Paul speaks of it as if he had inherited his faith in some way, like it had been passed down. But we see that Timothy didn't just believe in God out of that convenience, right? So when I say convenience is the enemy of faith, we're not talking about convenience as in, well, it's bad to be exposed to the gospel. It's bad to have Christian parents. That's not what's meant at all. What it does mean is at some point, though, to have a true, rooted, growing trust in God, there has to be some form of self-discovery, risks that are taken, sacrifices that are made to invest into that relationship meaningfully. This centurion saw who God was as a person who is worth more than any other person because of who he is, what he's done, and what he alone is able to offer. And I think the second thing we see here is compassion created the connection and the conviction. If you were to think about any example, any single one in the Gospels, where Jesus points out someone's faith. So even if, they don't, even if Jesus doesn't say great faith, if Jesus points out someone's faith, it will be because of this reason. Compassion created the connection and the conviction. Think about the, uh, the paralyzed man who was lowered from the ceiling by his friends. Jesus saw his faith and said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. It was compassion that created that connection and the conviction to bring him. There's blind men that would come to Jesus and cry out for mercy, and Jesus would point out faith as what drove them. There was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and sought physicians and hadn't been healed, and Jesus would say, your faith has made you well. It's compassion that created that connection and the conviction, right? Compassion 
created the connection and conviction. I think what we see about the centurion is he understood something special about God that others in the Jewish nation didn't get so well. That in order for him to have faith, the implication is God is having to bridge some impossible gaps to bring him into fellowship with him. And the centurion would have understood that what God has to overcome, how undeserving he is to receive the grace of God, how undeserving he is of the mercy, the generosity of God's favor, this would have built a greater understanding of compassion. And I think you see this in how he sees mercy. The need for mercy was real and transforming. Look at verse 6. I think it's interesting the centurion didn't come for any ailment of his own. Who did he come to Jesus for in verse 6? From what I have read and understand, you know, it's hard to make generalities about ancient cultures when things aren't specifically said, right? From what I understand, though, from what I've read, slaves in the Roman Empire in this era of time were not viewed even as real people. They weren't given the rights of a real person, and they were explicit, from what I understand, they were explicitly defined as not really being real people who were allowed real rights. They were viewed as expendable. They were viewed as tools. They were not viewed as anyone worthy of any right, privilege, or compassion. And yet this Roman officer with power, you see evidence of how mercy had transformed him fundamentally. He has compassion on his servant. And he sees that his servant is paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And in verse 7, when Jesus just says, I'll come and heal him. I think you further see his understanding of mercy in a personal way when in verse 8 he says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And so the need for mercy became the basis of his understanding of God. It's what built his faith from the ground up. You can see how his appreciation, his gratitude for mercy is very evident in his compassion for his servant, in how boldly he approaches Jesus, yet how humble, humble he is in responding to Jesus coming. And he saw Jesus in a way that nobody else did. So in verse 9, uh, verse 8 and 9, I think Jesus marvels specifically at these statements. He sees that Jesus only needs to say the word. He says in verse 9, I also am a man under authority. And so in verse 9, I think when he says, I also am a man under authority, he gets it. Jesus has begun his ministry. He's been performing miracles. He's been teaching. And the centurion seemingly understanding these things, that if Jesus has the authority that's implied by these miracles, then he has a direct connection with God. God is not bound by uh, space or distance. God is the creator of each person. And so if Jesus just speaks the word, that carries with it the authority of God himself. And he understood that the power of this spoken word had the power of his personal presence. Nobody else thought like that about Jesus. And so this centurion understood who Jesus was better than anyone else in the culture. And it would take years of investment for even the disciples to understand these principal things about who Jesus is. Again, 
his understanding of the compassion of God, his humility in knowing that God had bridged this impossible gap, how undeserved all of this was, the connection that's created, discovering these things on his own, working through these things, the inconvenience of it, all of that results in the evidence of what's proclaimed in verses 9 and 10. Think a good way of thinking about this. If I asked you, how is God working in your life? What would you say? I remember about a year ago, um, there was someone that I was with who was kind of reflecting on a Bible study that they were having with someone. It was a very encouraging opportunity. And this person, as they were learning, asked the Christian studying with them, how is God at work in your life? And the first thing that came to their mind was, well, you see, we don't really want to sound like the denominations, and so, you know, we don't really think about God in that way. What do you think? How is God at work in your life? I think what we see here is, is faith is not just an understanding of what is correct. What you see in the New Testament is Paul continuously, when he writes letters to churches, acknowledging God has power, and that power matters. And that power should fundamentally change our ambitions, our desires, our hope. It should fundamentally change how we think about God, our relationship with him, and what he's capable of doing with us and for us. This centurion, not even a Jew, had more trust in what God could do than people who knew about the Exodus being their own heritage. The miracles God had performed with the prophets in times past. Listen, I mean this for myself first. I really do. I, we, we think too little about God's power. We think too little about what God is capable of doing. We think too much about what God isn't going to do. You know, we could read this example and say, well, God's not going to heal me from my paralysis. God's not going to heal so-and-so. And you could think so much about, well, God's not going to do this. God's not going to do that. And you just end up thinking about what God isn't going to do rather than giving more credit to the power of what he does do, right? We give too little credit to the power of God. And that's something that's helped me understand I don't have this faith. This centurion has so much more faith than I do, and I just need to learn. One last thing, and this will transition us into the next uh, passage. Did this centurion see himself as worthy, right? It can be easy to think when we come to God, you know, I need to be better, I need to do better, I'm not following commandments good enough, I can be more obedient, I can be more loving, I could be serving God with more of my heart, And just like we give too little credit to God's power, we give too little credit to the value God places on us. There's an irony here. His sense of self-worth, he said, well, I'm not worthy. Well, did that withdraw him from Jesus? He said, don't come under my roof. Or did that embolden his approach? He understood where he stood in his position before Jesus. And even though he said, I'm not worthy for you to be under my roof, that was the very thing that emboldened his approach. And so his self-worth being based in faith emboldened him to see mercy, to put confidence and dependence in God's power, 
to put no confidence in himself and to see his need for what only Jesus could do for him. Let's see how that happens exactly in Matthew chapter 15. So in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, we get a very similar event and interaction. Jesus, in verse 21, he withdraws into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Um, This is the farthest Jesus ever went away from the Jewish territory. It is very unusual, and just to maybe make it a little clearer, um, Tyre and Sidon is way up there on the top left. Galilee, where he usually did his ministry, is the upper orange. Jerusalem is down there, kind of in the central area of Judea. And so Jesus is way outside of the Jewish territory, and he has only one interaction recorded here, only one, and it's with this woman. And look at verse 29 after this interaction. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, back where he usually was involved in his ministry. I want to suggest something to you. I know that Jesus is trying to withdraw from interactions with the Pharisees. And um, right before this, there was interactions where Jesus was having to deal with hard questions they were asking without being sincere. We see that Jesus withdraws after those interactions a lot. But this is extreme. And he's deep into Gentile territory. And so what I mean to say is, Jesus may have gone the distance for this one interaction to meet this one person that he knew was there waiting for him. Let's read about it. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she, be- she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So in both of these instances, both times, these are the only times, Jesus will say, great faith. Both of these instances, it's a Gentile. This is a Canaanite woman. Both of the times, it's somebody who has a very strong awareness of their lack of self-worth, and yet, again, it emboldens them. It doesn't cause them to think, oh, I could never go to Jesus. I can't go to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not worthy to go to Jesus. No, it's, that's the very thing that emboldened her, ironically. In both instances, they're appealing for someone else. In both instances, it's just a word that satisfies And in both instances, it's the word that heals, not the presence. Many similarities. So what was great about this woman's faith? And I just want to briefly reiterate, here's a woman again 
whose faith was self-discovered and inconvenient. Verse 22, how does she refer to Jesus? Son of David? (laughs) The amount of times Jesus is called Son of David in the gospel, you can count on three fingers. (laughs) This wasn't faith like the centurion that just magically appeared in the moment. This was a diligently pursued, meditated on, inconvenient understanding that had been built by looking at what God had done, pursuing an understanding of God, discovering who God is in a personal way. For her to say, Lord, son of David, is shocking. And again, she had obviously discovered this not through convenience, but rather even out of inconvenience. Imagine how she would have been looked at by the Jewish nation. You remember the Samaritan woman? You know, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. How about a Canaanite woman? And so she needed to overcome the obstacle of maybe her gender, racial issues, the rudeness that would have been present between her and the Jewish people. Lord, son of David. And again, compassion created the connection and her convictions. You know what's amazing about David? He was a beacon of mercy for God's nation. It's not just that David was a man of authority who ruled and executed judgments and fought wars. Ultimately, David is an illustration and a beacon of God's mercy. And so she knows if Jesus is the son of David and if she really understands what God did with David and why he did what he did with David, Well, here is a guarantee, a guarantee of mercy. Now, with that, we're talking about mercy. What do you think about Jesus' interaction with her? Doesn't answer her a word, just ignores her. The disciples say, send her away. She keeps shouting at us. Remember, Jesus and his disciples are probably trying to find rest. Potentially, they're looking to just wind down after just a lot of controversy and crowds. Maybe Jesus is looking for some downtime with his disciples. And you imagine she's shouting, screaming, wailing, crying. And as they see Jesus is saying nothing, like just if you're going to ignore her, just send her away. Well, then he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right, that's it. He said no. His focus, his mission, Israel, not you. She draws closer, verse 25. She came. So imagine this. She came. She draws closer. She bows down before him. And so her answer isn't, isn't well, I tried. If you're not going to give me what I want, you know, I gave it my best shot. She bows down before him. Lord, help me. Surely Jesus will do what she wants now. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I just want to reiterate what's on the board. Why did Jesus say these things? Is this just out of character? Is he, you know, with all of his faithfulness and kindness, well, here's just one example where Jesus actually is incredibly rude and just not kind at all. 
Jesus is drawing out as much truth, as much faith, and allowing the truth of that faith to be proclaimed as openly and clearly as possible because the disciples did not have this faith. Because I don't have this faith. This is not just for her sake. And I think Jesus' waiting is much less for her sake and is much more for the disciples' sake and for our sake. You couldn't turn this woman away. There's nothing you could do. You couldn't talk to her in a way where she would think, well, if that's the way you're going to talk to me, I'm out of here. Or how could you, you speak to me that way? I expected that from the disciples or from the Jewish people, but you, son of David? She says, that's right. Even the dogs feed on the crumbs. When I read verse 28, I can just hear the relief in Jesus' voice. I think that's something that can be so easy to overlook is the depth of love Jesus had. You imagine the fullness of heart he had to even ignore her initially. How difficult it would have been to wait to allow the disciples to misunderstand his silence. And you just hear the relief, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. This may sound very strange, but suffering distress emboldens the truth that great faith is built on. You know the people who had the greatest faith in the Bible they are the people who suffered the most. And very ironically, when we suffer distress, oftentimes that's when we feel most withdrawn from God. But rather, it's the opposite. Suffering puts into perspective the very truths that faith fundamentally is built on. The truth that she's not worthy. That's absolutely right. And she is a dog and so am I. None of us are worthy of even the slightest crumbs of God's favor. There was nothing she could do, nothing Jesus could do to turn her away. He is her only option and she knows no matter what he says, she's not going to leave until she receives mercy from him. He's the only one who can do it. Compassion, compassion created the connection and formed her conviction. And pride's entitlements with honor and comfort are the enemy of the truths that great faith is built on. You know, the centurion, how much did he forfeit? How much did he sacrifice? To win the favor of the Jewish leadership, to build them their synagogue, to risk all of those interactions and interacting with Jesus... But how much more this Canaanite woman? You see that there's no entitlement. There's no, well, if you don't treat me in a respectable way, there's no relationship between you and me. No entitlement for honor. No entitlement to comfort. No feeling of being owed anything. Of demanding that Jesus operate on her will. 
She's bringing her request, and it is urgent, but it is still with utter humility. I want to go back and look at a psalm just to attempt to try to connect that this faith that this woman had. You see this faith in others and especially in the psalms. I want to look specifically at a psalm that should be somewhat familiar because we looked at it recently. If you look at Psalm 44, and I just want to point out just the importance of this faith. And just to illustrate again how faith is emptied and allows God to empty the enemy of entitlement and pride, feeling entitled to honor and privilege and comfort of life, when those are never privileges warranted in our lives, that God never warrants us or owes us. In Psalm 44, a couple weeks ago, we looked at thankfulness in this psalm and how his thankfulness was not based in circumstance. In verse 1 through 3, he reflects on the past and sees who God is from the past, not that he's seen or witnessed any miracle of his own. He simply has heard God's word. And because of God's compassion towards Israel, that has formed a connection and conviction. So in verse 4, he says, You are my king, O God. He knows that God has the power to still grant victory. He knows that God can still push back enemies. In verse 6, he's not going to trust in his bow or sword because in verse 7, that's not how God has saved in the past. And so he says, we're going to boast in God and give thanks. But look at verse 9. Is his love and devotion for God based in entitlement? Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us a sheep to be eaten and scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. Look further at a section we did not look at a couple weeks ago in the latter part of the psalm. Look at verse 20 through 26, how the psalm concludes. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart, but for your sake we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help. And redeem us for the sake of our comfort. Redeem us for the sake of our happiness. Redeem us for the sake of our security and well-being. Redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And the psalmist there surrenders himself into God's hands. He entrusts himself. God is so worthy, so awesome. There's no one else. And this psalmist, just like that woman, it may sound bad, but God could treat this person any way he wanted to. He can make him lose before his enemies. He can make him a scoffing and a reproach among the nations. The psalmist can be serving God and obeying his will, and God can be causing him to suffer. And you can't stop him from admiring, loving, and coming before God. And in verse 26, this is a person who is so humbling, surrendering themselves before God, 
whenever God chooses to act, however God chooses to act, all that matters is for God to prove his faithful love. And that's all. And in his faithful love, there is a guarantee. And that is the faith of that Canaanite woman. I hope that the lesson this morning has been encouraging, emboldening, and convicting. Faith is inherently very simple, but faith is so significant, so profound. And oftentimes, the more we know about God, the more we know his will, the more important it becomes to go back to our roots and really understand what faith truly is, to seek to grow in that faith. If you're here this morning and there's anything we can do for you spiritually in your relationship God, with God, we set this time aside at the end of the sermon for the invitation song, if you'll stand and sing.